chapter 11 as we continue in the life of faith. Everybody cool down on the floor? You all right? We're trying to figure out what to do with you guys. We're working on it. We're praying every week. There's over 100 people in overflow right now. Overflow is packed out. We've turned almost 100 people away today. Um, we hope you guys are going to be okay on the floor, okay? It's a long sermon. Oh, my goodness, it's a long sermon. Just, you know, Charlie Brown, forever. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11, we're continuing in the series, The Life of Faith, and today we'll be talking about Moses. And we have this phenomenal painting that our artist has done. Let's hear it for our artist. He's done so good. I'm astounded that he's produced one of these things a week for the last several weeks. It's just amazing. And he's done such a good job with the picture of the parting of the Red Sea. Moses there looking so triumphant in the Lord. The people of Israel starting to head across. It's just an amazing work by the artist. Let's, let's uh, read now in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 23. We'll read a few verses and then we'll pray. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, note the word, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. And finally, verse 29, by faith. They passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that today you would do a work in our lives. We're inspired just reading about Moses, who choose to follow you and endure hardship over the pleasures, the passing pleasures of sin. And Lord, we confess together that we want to be more like that. And yet, if we're going to be honest, we're more into the passing pleasures of sin than being willing to suffer for you. But we're here today because we think maybe there's more. We're here today hoping, believing that Jesus, you could change our lives. That you save us from sin, death, and the devil, and even ourselves that you can transform us to be more like you, Jesus, that you can make us more selfless, more concerned with others, Lord, more concerned with your glory and not our own. So we ask that you would do that in our lives today. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and instruct us, help the people that are sitting on the floor, Lord, help their backs and their rear ends, help their minds. Holy Spirit, capture our hearts and our spirits and our imaginations today for the glory of Christ and instruct us in good things for the furtherance of his kingdom. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we've been working our way through Hebrews chapter 11 in this Life of Faith series, and we've gotten through quite a few guys and a girl, and uh, we've just got a few more to go. And here's the lessons we've been learning. Abel taught us about worshiping by faith. And then Enoch showed us what it means to walk by faith. Noah demonstrated working by faith. Abraham pictured faith that is willing to go and to forego and to witness and to worship. Sarah illustrated waiting by faith. Abraham instructed us concerning faith that is well tried. And Moses exemplifies winning by faith. And there is a progression in other words, these concepts, these understandings, these realities of faith build upon each other. If you develop a faith that worships, you will have a faith that walks with God. And if you have a faith that worships and walks, you will develop a faith that wants to work with God and for God like Noah did. And if you have a faith that's a worshiping faith and a walking faith and a working faith, you'll find yourself a willing servant as Abraham did. And if you're worshiping, walking, working, and willing, you will inevitably find yourself waiting as Sarah did because God does a work in us when we wait on him, amen? And when you're done waiting with God, 
God will make sure that your faith is also well tried because your faith is made precious through trials, more precious than refined gold, we learned last week. And when these accumulative effects take place in our lives of faith, then we find that we have faith that wins. Like Moses, faith that wins, faith that triumphs, faith that overcomes. And the reason that faith wins, don't misunderstand. The reason that faith wins is because God wins. The reason that faith wins or any of us can win is because God wins. And remember, it's all about the object of our faith, the person of Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's the genesis of all things and the consummation of all things. He is the one who spoke all things into existence and all things exist for his glory. He is the object of our faith and Jesus has already won. Through his cross and his resurrection, he has already won. What has he won? Everything. He has already won. He is currently winning and he will win. Understand this about Jesus. Also understand that we are his. And because we are his and co-heirs with him, then when and where he wins, we win because we're his identified with him because we're in Christ in this life of faith because it's no longer we who lives but Christ who lives in us and the life we live we live by faith unto him where he wins we win where he has victory we have victory where he has overcome we shall overcome and so Romans chapter 8 says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us And now there are three things that we see Moses winning against by faith. And our victories in Christ are in the same areas. Number one, by faith we win against fear. Number two, by faith we win against the flesh. And number three, by faith we win against the foe. By faith we win against fear, flesh, and the foe. And before we unpack those concepts, let's ask ourselves... How exactly does faith help us to win? How does faith help us to win? What's the nitty gritty? Get down to it. Well, here's the deal. Faith means that we believe certain things about who Christ is, about what God has said, things that have happened in the past, historical events, crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ present realities, him ruling and reigning on the throne, him interceding on our behalf, our forgiveness, his kingdom made manifest in his people, and future things, his coming again to establish his kingdom, to rule and reign physically on earth. We believe certain things about the past, the present, and the future. We believe them by faith, so we do not give into or give up to or give up on other things. It means we believe certain things about God so we don't give in to other things. Faith is to be recognized as trust. We trust Jesus. We trust in his victory on the cross. We trust in his current reigning and ruling from the throne. So therefore, we don't give in to fear. We don't give in to the flesh. And we should not give in to the foe. We trust God's purposes so we don't fear present circumstances. We trust God's promises so we don't pursue the things of the flesh. And we trust God's power so we don't allow the foe to rule over us. What does it mean that faith helps us win? It means that we believe, that we confess, that we hold on to certain truths that are seen to be better than, more real than, of greater value than other truths that would set themselves up and against these truths of Christ. And so we don't choose these other things. Now, by faith, we win against fear. Understand that fear is a tactic of the foe. When I say foe, we're talking about Satan, right? Anybody confused there? Fear is the tactic of the foe. And God does not want us to live in fear. That's for show. (laughs) Couldn't help myself. 
But specifically in context now, and for our purposes today, it's concerning fear that the enemy works through natural agents. You see, the spiritual realm always manifests itself in one way or another in the natural realm. And yet we don't war against the natural realm, right? What does Ephesians 6 say? We don't war against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. So there are these spiritual battles and a spiritual battle and these spiritual realities unfolding, but they manifest themselves in the physical realm. The spiritual realities of Jesus Christ manifest themselves in the life of the church, in you and I, in us together. And the spiritual realities of Satan and his kingdom manifest themselves in people as well. So there is this fear then that is associated with confrontation in confrontation with people who might be agents of the foe. And in context of Moses, it was the king of Egypt. The king of Egypt was an enemy of God's people and an enemy of God. And in context of the book of, he- of Hebrews, it was the Caesar of Rome. It was Nero. He was an enemy of God's people. He was an enemy of God. He was persecuting God's people. He was destructive. And there's a fear that is associated both with Moses and with the original recipients of the book, recipients of, the book of Hebrews with these ruling earthly powers and the spiritual forces behind them. But what we see is that we aren't to give in to this fear. Verse 23 talks about Moses' parents and their faith. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now look at Moses later on in verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. So the background story is necessary for us here. It starts in the book of Exodus. The book of Genesis closes with the story of Joseph and Joseph and all that had happened to him and then him rising to power in Egypt, second in command of Pharaoh and then his family coming and then Israel finding a place in Egypt and then prospering in in Egypt and multiplying. But then Exodus opens up with these words a few verses into it. And there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt who did not know Joseph. So he didn't care about Joseph and his previous high standing. And he didn't care about the people of Israel, these foreigners within the land who were prospering. In fact, he saw them as a threat. And so the government issued sanctions against Israel. Government issued sanctions against Israel in the land of Egypt and made it difficult for them to exist there. And one of the things that was proclaimed was there's too many Hebrews, so every male that is born, kill. The females could live. Infanticide. Kill the babies so we can limit the growth of the race and the powerful ones who might later uprise against us. These things happen in our world today. This was happening in Egypt in Exodus chapter 2. Moses' parents, who by the way are named Amram and Jochebed, we learn that in Exodus 6.20, were not afraid of the king's edict. They didn't let the wickedness of the world system dictate their morals. This is important. This is a big faith lesson. They did not let the world and its system dictate their morals. They said, we will not give up our son. He's a beautiful boy. And what parent doesn't feel that way? We will not give him up. And so the story goes in Exodus 2 that they made a little uh, thing out of reeds, a little boat, and put some pitch in it and put a little mow in there and sent him down the river. And as the will of God and the sovereignty of God would have it, Pharaoh's daughter found the little boat. And Pharaoh drew him out of the water. Thus she named him Moses, it says in Exodus 2. And back in those days, Pharaoh didn't nurse her, uh, Pharaoh's daughter didn't raise or nurse her own kids. So she turned to one of her slaves who was a Hebrew girl, who was Moses' older sister. And uh, Moses' older sister said, oh, do you want me to go find a Hebrew woman to nurse a child? And she said, yeah, go get me a Hebrew woman to nurse a child. And so she went and got Mo's mama. I mean, how good is God? God still does these things. She, by faith, sent him down the river, and God gave him back. And so she grew up nursing the child 
who would be the deliverer by the power of God of the people of Israel. It's an amazing story. So Moses then was raised in the house of Pharaoh, had all the privileges of the house of Pharaoh, all the privileges, all the riches, all the wealth, all the honor, all the prestige, all the power, had all that stuff of growing up in the house of Pharaoh. And yet he knew that he was called to be deliverer for Israel. And one day he saw an Egyptian guard beating a Hebrew slave and he couldn't take it anymore. Righteous indignation welled up in him and he went and he killed the Egyptian uh, guard. And then he immediately fled. And that's what verse 27 is talking about. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, but he endured as seeing him who is unseen. He didn't flee, it says here, because he was afraid of the wrath of the king, but he fled because he had taken God's purposes into his own hands. He was trying to accomplish the work of God his own way, and that never works. You got to do God's work God's way. God's work God's way will never lack God's provision. And so Moses, by faith, went into the wilderness, met a chick out there, got married, started raising sheep, and eventually had that whole the burning bush experience. And 40 years after much humbling, after all the power and prestige and all the reality of being a son of Pharaoh were purged out of him, and he was made a shepherd of sheep, God sent him back to shepherd the sheep of Israel with a mighty outstretched hand of God. It's an incredible story. And it's a story that overcomes fear of perverse world systems. Now, we don't have the same equivalent in America. Yes, let's, I mean, yeah, whatever. America doesn't have a perfect government. We all know that, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But we as Christians now, okay, so as Christians in America... We are not under a king who is wanting to kill us or our babies. We're just not experiencing that in America. People around the world are. Our brothers and sisters, Christians all around the world are living under that reality of a government like that of the Caesar of Rome, Nero, that wanted to kill Christians. Or the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who wanted to kill the babies of the Israelites. These are present realities in our world. But let's Make it contextual for you and I. In America, we just don't face that. But there is a different sort of pressure that we do face that equally causes fear. And it's the pressure of opposing religious views. Now, that's a big deal in America. Opposing religious views. You know, we have religious freedom in America, and that's a wonderful thing. But it comes then with some real tensions that exist within society. Islam is growing incredibly rapidly in this country. Three mosques in Santa Barbara now. Islam is growing. The cults are growing in America. Other religions are growing in America. And perhaps the fastest growing religion in America, secular humanism. And Christianity and secular humanism are on a collision course in this country. It's been unfolding for some time. And what we see is this dichotomous process taking place. That American society is simultaneously becoming more religious and more secular. You know what that means? That there's a greater polarization among the population. You know what that means? Ultimately, some degree of confrontation. Whether it be in the spiritual realm through prayer, whether it's an issue of prayer in schools of the expression of the Christian faith in the public forum, whatever it is, there is confrontation. And this tends to bring fear among Christians. We feel outnumbered. We feel outvoiced. We can feel outvoted. All of these things. And so there is a degree of fear, meaning it hinders our boldness within society. Now, the disciples in the first century were experiencing the same thing at the hands of the religious Jews. And the religious Jews grabbed a hold of them in Acts 4 and said, you stop talking about Jesus. It wasn't an issue of a First Amendment right. They didn't have one. They were told expressly by the powers of the land, you stop talking about Jesus. We're done with this. And Peter looked at the cats and said, whether it's right to obey God or you, you decide that for yourself. But as far as it concerns us, we can't stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. 
But there was fear associated. Though he made a bold proclamation, there was fear associated with that. How do we know? Because they had a prayer meeting and said, God, make us bold. They wouldn't pray for boldness if there wasn't a lack of it. There was some real, tangible, societal conflict which caused fear in their hearts. And so we read in Acts 4, starting in verse 29. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I want you to know what the answer to the problem was. It was prayer in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was prayer in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was not ultimately at the ballot box, though we should vote and we should vote righteously. It wasn't merely in the political forum, though Christians should be involved in the political forum and in politics. But where is the power? We've had Christian presidents. That's not where the power is. Where's the power? The power is in the person of the Holy Spirit who is the power of God. And how do we access the power? In prayer. Coming to God, confronted with a spiritual problem, manifest in the physical realm, confronted with a spiritual problem, we go to God. And we say, God, we need spiritual power to confront this problem. And then he'll give us wisdom how to make our way into politics, how to interact with society, how to be contributing members of society. But you see, it's a spiritual issue and it can only be addressed with spiritual means with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that so much of the church is void of power is because they're void of prayer. If the church would pray more, the church would have more power, not in and of themselves, but in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we would see more communal societal change. The battle is won on our knees. If the church would commit herself to prayer as the early church did, we would see more societal change. It is one of the greatest marvels in all the history of the universe that Christianity started in a little manger in Bethlehem and within 300 years was the official religion of the Roman Empire of the world. History has never seen anything like that. Much of it is owed to the fact that the early church addressed spiritual problems with spiritual means. They prayed and they relied upon the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's a faith issue. That's a faith decision. So by faith, we don't give in to fear. By faith, we don't give in to fear of competing religions, competing ideologies. We boldly, in love, with gentleness and reverence, confront them. But we confront them. We don't back down. We proclaim Jesus Christ. Because it's the worst kind of hypocrisy to believe that without Jesus Christ, people are going to hell and then to stay silent about it. It is the sickest, most perverse, self-absorbed hypocrisy imaginable to really believe that we have the answer to the well-being of humanity and to sit on it out of fear. Moses' parents didn't do that. Moses didn't do that. The early church didn't do that. And so 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 7, says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So when we're struggling with fear, that's not from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and discipline. Power, love, and discipline. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Jesus Christ from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel." Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Now, I'll level with you. As I preach, I preach to myself. Because all of us experience this sort of fear 
in the public forum when it comes to representing Jesus Christ. There are some who don't. Gifted evangelists on the street, just fifth gear doing it. But normal folks like you and I, there's this fear. And you know, it's really weird for me because I'll be as bold as a lion at a pulpit. Put me on a pulpit in front of 100,000 people. I don't sweat that for a minute. I'm ready to go. I don't care who they are. But put me in coffee bean and tea leaf with a friend from high school who says, so what are you up to? I keep seeing these stupid bumper stickers. <laughs> what, what is this all about? And, and my immediate visceral response is fear. Why? Relational rejection. I'm afraid if I talk about Jesus, they're going to think I'm trying to shove Jesus down their throat and they're not going to want to be my friend and they're going to think I'm lame and a dork. And so I sit on the truth. That's wrong. That's error. That's lame. That's cheesy. I am that way. I don't want to be that way. And what the power of the Holy Spirit does is transform. Peter, in the face of a little slave girl, said, I swear, I don't know Jesus. I've got nothing to do with the dude. But when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he stood in front of all Israel and preached a risen Christ. And he was crucified upside down in Rome for his faith in Jesus. What made the difference? He addressed the spiritual problem with spiritual means, the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And when he was arrested, the church prayed. And then when there was opposition, the church prayed. And when there was a call to be bold, the church was bold. You see, so God takes fearful people like you and I who have normal, everyday, relational rejection issues and makes us bold to the glory of Jesus Christ. And then our friends and our families get saved. People get saved. Faith wins against fear. But when we continue in fear, it arrests our development. You see, it's part of the natural growth of a Christian that he or she witness of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's part of how we grow. It's part of how our faith is tried. It's part of our common experience. Talking about, sharing, witnessing, ministering, teaching about Jesus Christ. There's a real growth process that takes place when we do that. And if we inoculate ourselves from that, if we so wall up our lives that we never have to do that, then you will have arrested development. You will have stunted growth. And if you have stunted growth, you will drift from Jesus. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. It was written to the Hebrew Christians because they were afraid of Nero. They were afraid of losing property, of losing lives, of losing position within society. And so it was stunting their growth. And so they were starting to drift away. And so he writes to them and warns them, don't drift. Many of us have an arrested development because we're all bound up by fear and that's not God's will for you. God has not given you a spirit of fear. You don't give a psycho nutbag on the corner with a sign pasted to your back and shoving things down people's throats, but you do need to be a loving, purposeful, understanding Christian who cares enough to articulate the truths of Jesus Christ when people need to hear it. That's the call in every one of us. And I know how that feels. That feels like a burden to us. But again, that's a result of our own perversion, of our own esteeming of people above the purposes of God. That's all that is. And so let's deal with that. Let's have the boldness to ask the Holy Spirit to come upon us today that we would be transformed, that we would receive power, that the very foundations of the building would be shook and we'd receive power to be his witnesses. In Carpinteria, in Summerlin, in Montecito, in Ventura, in Oxnard, in Santa Barbara, in Goleta, in Camarillo, and to the outermost parts of the earth, and Ojai. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of Ojai folk up in here. Not only will fear arrest our development, but fear will keep us from entering into the promises of God. It's exactly what happened in Numbers 13, 14 with Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. 
They were supposed to enter into the promised land, but they were afraid because of the giants. Once again, they were afraid of the societal, cultural confrontation. And they backed down. And so they missed the promises of God. And guys, there were real consequences to that. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation died off. And it was merely a fear issue. That's all it was. But Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb were bad. (laughs) Joshua and Caleb were unafraid. And they stood against a whole generation, a whole congregation, even a whole church that was fearful. And they said, come on, guys, if the Lord is for us, who can be against us? God will deliver the promises into our hands. And they had to wait until a whole generation died out. And then they entered into the promises of God. The point is this, fear will not only stunt our growth and cause us to drift, but fear will keep us from entering into all the fullnesses of the promises of God for our lives. And it's just too good to miss. It's just too rich to miss. And so verse 27, the second part about Moses, he endured as seeing him who was unseen, or as a New Living Translation puts it, he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. He kept on going because his eyes were fixed on Jesus. Mo had tenacity. Tenacity didn't come naturally to Moses. It was something that was developed in an atmosphere of faith. It was something that was developed by faith. He had this tenacity in the, faith of, in the face of opposition because of faith. Why? Because he kept his eyes on God. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. He knew that God had a purpose for his life, but often we make the mistake of getting our eyes on the purpose. We need to keep our eyes on the one who has purposed. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. May I remind you that Peter walked on water as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. But the moment he got his eyes on the wind and the waves, he began to sink into the very circumstances that a moment before he was winning over by faith. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. What does that mean practically? A lot. I find for me it is a daily situation to keep my eyes on Jesus. A daily situation, daily choosing the right thing, daily being in the word, daily praying, daily fellowshipping. I'm the sort of guy that if I let a few days go by, I'm drifting, I'm slipping, I'm messing up. I'm getting my eyes on all sorts of stuff. And there's plenty to get your eyes on in the world around us. So truly it is a battle for the Christian to keep his or her gaze fixed on Jesus Christ. Fix your gaze on Jesus. Run the race to win. Do whatever it takes. Are there distractions that need to be cut off? Then cut them off. Are there certain devices that need to be unplugged? Then unplug them. Are there certain disciplines that need to be adopted? Then adopt them. Are there certain snooze buttons that need to be left alone? Then leave it alone. Are there certain friends, relationships that need to be surrendered? Then surrender them. What do you got to do to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ? do it. There is a confrontation in society. It is spiritual in nature, but it is manifesting itself in the physical realm. And we are not called to fear, but to power and to love and a sound mind. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, Israel had all these enemies coming against her. And the king Jehoshaphat prayed and said, God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't have all the answers for the problems in society. We don't have all the answers for the pluralism and the increasing dichotomy, nor the syncretism. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Point number two, by faith we win against flesh. We not only win against fear, but we win against the flesh. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure, notice, choosing rather to endure ill treatment, literally in the Greek, to have bad times with. Choosing rather to have bad times with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. So he made a faith decision here. We make these faith decisions every day. He chose to value the things of God above the things of the world. He chose rather to have hard times with the people of God in the service of God than to have the passing good times in the house of Pharaoh. 
And when it says the passing pleasures of sin, it's not just referring to gross sins and sexual immorality. It's talking about power and prestige and possessions and wealth. These things in and of themselves are not wrong. In fact, they're morally neutral. People often say money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. There's a vast difference. Money is nothing. It's morally neutral. What? But the love of money perverts the heart of a man or a woman. And we make faith decisions every day, whether we will serve God or mammon, as Jesus said. And you can't have two masters. And he realized that he needed to lay down the passing pleasures of being in the house of Pharaoh to obey God and participate in his purpose for the house of Israel. That was a big deal. And these are no small things. Power, prestige, possession, wealth, we all want them. I want them, you want them, we all want them. And they're fun for a season. That's what this text is saying. Passing pleasure, they're pleasurable. You have a lot of money, you're going to have some fun. Some prestige, some power, there's going to be some good times coming your way. But the word of God says they're passing. The word of God says they don't last, that they do not ultimately satisfy. They simply don't satisfy. If you don't believe that, read and watch biographies of rock stars. (laughs) Best way to figure it out. I used to love watching VH1's um, Behind the Music. Anybody used to watch that? VH1's Behind the Music? Same storyline every time. So-and-so was talented and he wanted all the money and all the cars and all the drugs and all the chicks. And he got them all and he had an awesome time. And then he hated himself and tried to kill himself and now he's sitting on the screen with nothing saying, oh boy, it didn't really work out. (laughs) Same story, all of them. All of them got exactly what they wanted. All the world had to offer and it left them empty and ripped off. Man, if you're having a hard time believing that, read the Bible and read those stories. It's true. Human experience tells us that those things do not ultimately satisfy. Only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus deals with the yearning and the longing of your heart and of the totality of humanity. And we need to believe that by faith. And so therefore then, faith will cause us to hold right values and to make the right decisions. We can have a proper view of wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. We can have a proper view of wealth and a proper view of power and prestige and position and possessions, but a proper view because we esteem the things of God as greater, as a being of surpassing value, a lasting inheritance as the New Testament puts it. It says in verse 26, he thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. I mean, he made that real decision. And there's a call, especially on the young people. Our church is so young. There's a call on you guys to weigh out the promises of the world and the promises of Christ and to make a meaningful decision about that because it will direct the course of your life. I mean, it really will. And so don't go into that flippantly. Don't go into that quickly. Don't buy into the hype. Really think about what life in Christ means and the promises of a life and salvation. Really consider that. And then the things of the world. And you might end up like Abraham and God makes you incredibly wealthy. Praise the Lord. But you have a right view. But we need to consider these things. Moses left the palace and he never went back to the old way of life. He had to surrender that. He chose rather to be identified with the Jewish slaves. He'd been there done that, and he laid it down for the purposes of God. Now, in our own context, we make these decisions every single day. And 1 John is a scary warning to us, chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, do not love the world nor the things of the world, the things in the world, more properly. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. That word love that's used there is the word agape. And in this context, it means this. Don't seek to find your identity, your joy, 
and your satisfaction in the things of the world. It doesn't mean that you can't say, oh, I love my 1979 Strat. I do. That's a guitar for you that, those people that know nothing. It doesn't mean that you can't say about guitars. I was thirsty. I didn't finish the sentence. Know nothing about guitars. Whatever. Doesn't mean you can't say, I love my car or I love this and that or the other. It simply means do not seek to find your identity, your purpose, your joy, and your satisfaction in those things. In fact, and 1 John is so scathing, it says if you do that, the love of the Father is not in you. There's some sort of disconnect. Now, here's why that worries me personally, because I'm susceptible to, do, to doing that. I can easily start to find joy and satisfaction, at least try to, in material things, in recognition, in how many friends I have on Facebook. <laughs> That's just how we are as people. But the Bible tells me don't give in to that. You see, by faith we win over the flesh. And those are the lusts of the flesh. And notice what it says, the lusts of the, it says, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, passion. The lust of the eyes, possession. The boastful pride of life, position. All temptation from the enemy falls into those three Ps. Passion, possession, and position. Check it. What are you being tempted with? Where's your flesh yearning? See if it doesn't fall underneath one of these three headings. Passion, possession, or position. It's the same thing that Satan got Eve with in the garden, right? In Genesis chapter three, it says, when she saw that the fruit was good for food, passion, a delight to the eyes, possession, and desirable, desirable to make one wise, position, she ate of the fruit. Satan hasn't got any new tricks, but he's got good tricks. Passion, possession, and position. The Bible says be aware of letting your heart get entangled with these things. When you find yourself pursuing them above and beyond and in lieu of the purposes of God, you are in a dangerous place. Repent, therefore. Do an about face. Turn around. Reconnect with God. Get right. I've been sharing with you guys throughout this Life of Faith series how I was involved with the family surfboard business and how it was my family's plan that I would take it over and it was my plan and I loved that plan. I loved surfboard, I, surfboards, I loved making them, I loved the surfboard business, I loved everything that came along with that. And yet there was this call to ministry and it was messing with me. And I was doing them both for a seven-year period and doing a whole lot and they were on a trajectory that meant they could not both last. But you see, in my mind, the things of the surfboard business were far too valuable for the kingdom of God. And so I remember the time I was in another country, I was in England doing ministry over there. And I remember talking with God saying, God, here's the deal. Okay, listen. You want me to do this whole ministry thing? That's cool. I'll, I'll keep teaching Bible studies and preaching and discipling and all this stuff. I'm cool with that. But here's the deal, Lord. See, th these parents want to hand the surfboard business over to me. And it's a really good one. It's one of the biggest ones in the world. And I don't know if you know this, Lord, but magazines call me and they do interviews with me. And I don't know if you've read them, but you know, there's... <laughs> Trans World and Surfer and all these mags doing interviews and, and uh, you know, there, there's some pretty good cash that comes along with the business, Lord. I don't know if you've checked that out, but there's, you know, more money than there is in the ministry. That's for dang sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of the best surfers in the world come into my shaping room and talk to me. And so here's the deal, Lord. I'll, I'll do the ministry thing, but you need what I've got. The possessions the position, the influence that I could have for you, Lord, if I was a world-famous surfboard maker like my dad is, the way I could impact the world for you, then I could do so much more ministry, Lord. You, you need this surfboard business. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I, I told these things to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to me through the life of Moses. And he said, Brett, Moses had a really big surfboard business. <laughs> it was called the House of Pharaoh. He had more position, more power, more prestige 
than you've ever imagined. But for me to use him, I had to take him out of the house of Pharaoh and make him a shepherd before he could do anything for my glory. Put it on the altar. Man, I'm telling you, it was hard for my flesh. It meant fame and prestige and money and fun. It's hard to put that on the altar. But by faith, we win over the flesh. And what is faith? It's believing in the value of certain things over the value of other things and then making decisions accordingly. And so by grace and the mercy of God, I just decided that the kingdom of God and the work of God was more important for me, for me, than surfboards. We all have to make these decisions. By faith, we overcome the flesh. And finally, by faith, we win against the foe. Verses 28 and 29. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. And by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Last point, and it's a quick one. By faith, we win against the foe. You need to know that we do have a foe and his name is Satan and he does want to mess up your life. And if he cannot get you to hell because you've become a Christian, then he wants to make your life hell. He wants to get you caught up in sexual immorality. He wants you in bad relationships. He wants you pursuing passions and possessions and position. He wants to complicate the simplicity of life in Christ. He wants to rip you off of the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that are found in obeying Jesus Christ. And he's real serious about it. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Other Christians going through the same stuff. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You got to make faith decisions. The enemy is looking to rip you off. Jesus said in John 10, 10, Satan came to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and life more abundant. And so there are daily decisions that are made according to that. First John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Are you letting Jesus systematically do that in your life? Are you letting him overcome and destroy the work of the enemy that tries to come against every Christian? He's already accomplished it on the cross. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ." So the Bible tells us then, it's speaking to Satan in that last verse, verse 15, that he is a defeated foe. That Jesus Christ defeated him in the cross and the resurrection. And that's a past tense with a present result. It is a done deal and it has an immediate, tangible effect on your life today when we live by faith. What is faith to, but to believe that certain things are more valuable than other things? To trust that Jesus Christ and his way is better than the ways of the enemy. But you see, when you make that decision now to make an exodus out of that lifestyle of slavery, you need to know that there will come a point where Satan comes to try to get you back. There's a transfer of location that takes place, Colossians 1. 13 and 14, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. There is a transfer that takes place. There's an exodus that happens like happened with Moses and the children of Israel, but the enemy doesn't always give up that easily. That's why it says in Ephesians chapter four, don't give the enemy an opportunity 
Topos in the Greek, that word opportunity. It means a place, a location, a foothold, a stronghold. Don't give Satan an opportunity in your life because he's an opportunist. And he is opportunistic. And he is a squatter. He has no legal rights in the life of the Christian. But if we give him ground, then he will tie down, hold down, hunker down, set up camp, and then you have a stronghold. Don't give the enemy an inch. And know that he prowls around like a roaring lion. And if you are endeavoring to continue in the exodus and walk out of slavery and into the promises of God, he will pursue you. But by faith, we win over the foe. He's a defeated foe. I want you to see it and we'll end right here. Go to Exodus 14, please. This is where we end. The story that we've been alluding to, the Exodus and then Pharaoh's pursuit after the children of Israel, Exodus 14, starting in verse 9. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside mm, that place and that place. Verse 10. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Here's a picture of it. They've been released. They started on the exodus. They've come out of the place of slavery, and the enemy, the foe, Pharaoh, changes his mind and says, I want them back. And he comes after them with a full weight of Egypt. And it's a picture of the Christian who said, I'm not living that old life anymore. And he or she makes an exodus out of slavery to sin and is on their way to the promises of God. And Satan comes after him with the full power of hell. Verse 11. Then they said to Moses, it is because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Oh, wow. That's ridiculous. And that is so you and I when the enemy is messing with us. It doesn't pay to serve God. It's so hard to do the right thing. Life was so easy before, now it's hard. <laughs> and we do that same thing. And they say, why'd you bring us out of Egypt? What are you doing? Did they forget that Pharaoh was slaughtering their children and burdening them and killing them and that they were slaves? Yeah, they forgot. And I do this. I forget what the slavery of the old life was like. And on occasion, I flirt with it and I need a reminder. Don't go there. Don't. Go back to Egypt. They had lost perspective in their fear. See, don't be afraid of the enemy. He's a defeat of foe. Be strong in the strength of the Lord and in his might. Be strong in the strength of the Lord and in his might. All the enemy has got on you, Christian, is intimidation. If you haven't given him a foothold, then all he has on you is intimidation. But if we give in to that fear, we lose perspective when we start thinking, yeah, it's better off in Egypt. Next verse, verse 13. Moses said to the people, don't fear. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. It could be translated, take your stand and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Oh, Mo, thank you. What a good pep talk. <laughs> Get up, you wuss. Take your stand and watch the Lord do what the Lord does. Yes. They needed to hear that pep talk at that moment. A proclamation of faith and trust in the Lord. Now skip down for time's sake to verse 21. The story depicted in our painting this morning. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept back the sea by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided and the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit. Here comes the enemy. 
And all Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and all his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. The enemy said, we got to get out of here. What does James chapter four say? It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Take your stand, trust in the Lord, be strong in the strength of the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you because the Lord fights on our behalf. And this is exactly what Pharaoh and the army said. We're out of here. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land. It's said that now about three times. When God does it, it's not mucky. It's not muddy. It's not slimy. It's dry, solid. On Christ's solid rock we stand. They walked through on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Now look at these last two verses. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, when they saw the victory of God, they chose only to fear God and to believe God. Have we not seen the victory of Christ on the cross? How can we fear anyone other than Jesus Christ? We fear Jesus Christ and we serve him alone and we believe him. And what we believe about him affects the daily decisions that we make. And we believe that he is victorious. In fact, Mo wrote a song about it. Mo wrote a song. Look what it says in the next verse, chapter 15. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior. He fights on behalf of his people. What are you afraid of? And what do you believe God can do about it? What are you desirous of? And do you believe that Jesus Christ is better than it? And what lies is the enemy telling you? And is not the truth of God stronger and better? And does it not dispel the lie? By faith, we win because Christ has won. Lord, thank you for this word today. Thank you that we are more than conquerors in you, Lord. Help us today to experience the victory. Holy Spirit, come and do a deep work in our hearts. Make us strong in the strength of the Lord. And Lord, in areas where we are previously weak, with immorality and with temptation and with being given to the flesh and desiring position and recognition where we are weak, make us strong now, Lord. Transform our lives by the Holy Spirit. Cause us to be a different people, a peculiar people called by your name. Make us a royal priesthood and a holy nation for your glory. Make us a church of Jesus Christ, which you are building in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Give us the victory this day, Lord, for your glory and in our families and in our relationships and in our community and in our nation. Grant us victory, we pray. As the disciples prayed that your Holy Spirit would come upon us, that we would experience strength to be bold, that we would gain new confidence, Lord, that we wouldn't be intimidated by the spiritual, religious reality of the nation, but rather by who you are, by your truths and what you've done. Holy Spirit, come. Purge out of our lives the silliness and the carnality. 
the weakness and the fear and come and rule and reign in us, Christ. We believe you're better and you're greater. You need help this morning. The prayer team's going to be up here to your right. I know that we have the 405 up here, but that's cool. Listen, don't miss prayer because it's crowded, okay? Don't trip over anybody, but make your way to the prayer team today because I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to do a deep work. If you can't get there, pray with the people around you. Everybody can pray, okay? Let's do it.